Will you join with me in prayer? Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. That is our prayer for this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, my goal is very simple for our time together. And I want to spell that out at the beginning. And that is simply this, that these words of the Apostle Paul would be more true in your life in 40 minutes than they are right now. That we would, from now on, regard no one from a worldly point of view. The world of Islam, particularly since 9-11, has crashed into our consciousness and our lives. And it's easy for us to have a worldly or according to the flesh or, dare I say, even an American point of view relative to the Muslim people. This morning we want to take a peek into the heart of a Muslim. We also want to look in our own hearts. And then finally, we want to look in the heart of God. My goal is simple. I want you to grow in your understanding of Islam because often ignorance is what breeds bias. And I'd also like if you need to have your attitude changed for you to let the Holy Spirit do that. But finally, that our behavior would change as well and God would energize us and send us out to do his mission among the Muslim peoples of the world. And to do that, we need to turn to God's word. So if you have your Bibles and have not turned yet, look at Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Now you're probably familiar with this story. Jonah eventually went and preached to the city of Nineveh. It was a five-word sermon in Hebrew. And he barely got the sermon out when the entire city repented. The king himself wore sackcloth and ashes and made a rule that everybody had to repent or they were going to get blasted. The greatest revival probably in the history of preaching and the preacher's angry. Some strange kind of preacher Jonah was. Well, what was going on? We need to go back to the beginning of the book. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. God had sent Jonah on a mission, and it was to go to the great city of Nineveh, a city 550 miles to the northeast of Israel, with 600,000 people in it, the largest city on earth at the time of Jonah. It had walls that were 100 feet high and 1,500 towers all around this great, massive city. It was indeed a great city. But the text says that it was also an evil, or the NIV says, a wicked city. Historians tell us that the Assyrians were endowed with a viciousness and spite that has never been surpassed. Their conquered subjects could only look forward to such benefits as being impaled alive en masse, burnt, disemboweled, flayed alive, eyes and tongues torn out, and other unspeakable atrocities. There's more in the notes if you want to read them. They were a wicked civilization. And so when God sent Jonah to go to them, he refused. And when he went the second time and succeeded in his mission, he was angry. Why? 
It wasn't just that he was afraid. It was that Jonah did not want the wonderful covenant blessings of God that had been promised to the Jewish people to be extended to this uncivilized, barbaric group of Assyrians. They were Israel's enemies and they hated them because of their brutal oppression. And Jonah knew that if he preached, God's grace might come to them and they might be saved. And that's the last thing he wanted to see. What is our Assyria today? I believe it is the Muslim world. It is a great city. There was a 2020 special last week that said there are 1.5 billion Muslims on the face of the earth. Here's where they're located, primarily in North Africa, the Middle East and Central Asia. There are two to three million Muslims in the United States, perhaps more than that, and their numbers are growing. They are a great city. When we moved into our home in Fishers nine years ago, there was a nice little church there on Lantern Road. And about a year later, they sold that to Muslims. And now they've built a mosque and an Islamic school right a stone's throw from our house. And they pray there every Friday and the police have to get out just like they do here in direct traffic. The Muslims are here among us. It is a great city. But is it a wicked city like Nineveh? Since 9-11, we have viewed Muslims as the enemy. They have hurt us. They have killed us. We are at war with terrorism. There are some in this church who have relatives in that struggle. And here is an example of how many of us, I think, if we were to be honest, feel about Islam. A pickup truck with these words on it. Everything I ever needed to know about Islam, I learned on 9-11. There's some truth to that. But if that's the attitude of your heart today, let me suggest that that's not the attitude of a Christian. In fact, there is no room in the kingdom of God for redneck Christianity. And what I want you to do is learn more about Islam than what you saw on 9-11 that will help put that into context and then allow God to move us to a biblical response to radical Islam. And my question is simply this. Are Muslims really the enemy or are they victims of the enemy? Pastor Mark asked me to preach about Islam because, frankly, we don't know much about it as Christians here in the U.S. And, and we're on a great collision course of Islam and Western civilization. We need to know about this large group of people. And, and three things just as we start. First of all, I'm not an Islamic scholar. I've not studied it extensively. But I do know Islam from the inside. Because, you see, I was born and raised in a Muslim country in Pakistan. And I spent 14 years there myself as a missionary. I've lived over half of my life in the Muslim world. And I, I, I know Muslims. In fact, I was practically raised by them. My, my mother's a doctor and she worked long hours at our mission hospital. And so during the day I was cared for by a lady from a nearby village. She became my auntie, my Muslim auntie. And, and as a toddler and as a baby, she took care of me all day long. In fact, my mom says that when she would come home from work in the evening, I would even refuse to go to my mom. I preferred to stay with this auntie. And if I, if I close my eyes and think real hard, I can actually still smell her skin. Even today, I was that close to her. So I know Islam from the inside. And I want to share that with you because they're people just like you and I are. They're, they're victims of a large system, but I want to get behind that to see the reality of who they are. And I'm a little bit like Mowgli from Jungle Book. You remember that story? 
He had been raised in the jungle, and I've been raised in the jungle of Islam, as you understand it. And, and so I've come back now to you to describe what life in the jungle is really like. And I do, by the way, have the solution to the problem of Islam. We're going to get to that before the end of this message. The second thing is there's no way I can cover even a portion of all the issues that are involved. And I'm confident that I will not answer all of your questions today. First hour, I was throwing away notes right and left and still didn't get through everything. You want to grab a copy of the notes. There's more information in there and a couple of websites that you can refer to. To, to answer other questions. I'm also available on email if you want to correspond more or give me a call at church. But we just have time to touch on a few things this morning. And thirdly, I'm going to be speaking from a religious, from a Christian perspective, a biblical perspective, and not a political one. This is very important to understand. Because I think that how a government should respond to radical Islam is completely different from how the church or an individual Christian should respond to radical Islam. And I'm just talking now about us as Christians and as the church. So three quick questions. Where did Islam come from? The answer, Saudi Arabia, around A.D. 600, with the prophet Muhammad. Michael Hart wrote a book called The 100, a ranking of the most influential persons in history. And do you know who he listed as the single most influential person in history? It was Muhammad. And you and I would disagree with that, but certainly we could put him at number two. And it just shows you what a significant individual this was in the history of the world. So who was he? Well, he was born in Mecca in 570 A.D., orphaned at an early age, raised by his uncle. When he was 25, he married a a rich widow named Khadija. And he began to manage her caravan business in and out of Mecca. But he wasn't very happy with life as he knew it. He knew there was something deeper He grew up around Christians and Jews who had mixed polytheism in with their religion and he sensed something was amiss. So he went into the mountains around Mecca and began to meditate. And there one day he heard a voice speak to him in the cave and the voice said, recite. It was the angel Gabriel in his view who was beginning to reveal to him the Quran. And over the next 23 years until his death, God continued to reveal to him this book that they look at as the foundation of their faith. He didn't get a very good reception initially in Mecca. In fact, he moved away to Medina, about 200 miles away, and there he gathered a few followers together. But even there, the historian Kenneth Craig says he was received with amused disdain. This guy trying to start a new religion. And so he began to turn from just preaching to the use of force. And in Medina, he gathered some soldiers, a small army around him, and began to attack the caravans from Mecca. And over the next few years, he, he actually overtook Mecca. And by his death in AD 632, he had conquered most of the Arabian Peninsula. So what were these revelations he got in the Quran? And why is it such a big deal that if someone would threaten to burn it, They will protest even to the point of five people being killed in Afghanistan during a protest against the potential burning of the Quran. Well, you need to understand that Muhammad was essentially illiterate. And for him to produce a book of such exquisite Arabic beauty as the Quran is, the Muslims consider to be his one great miracle. He did no other miracles, but he did produce the Quran, and they view that as stamping him with the authority of God's own prophet. But the Quran is not a book that he wrote. You need to understand that. They believe that the Quran always existed from all eternity with God. 
And that at a point in time, God brought that book down to earth and revealed it through the prophet Muhammad. And in the Quran, God revealed himself to mankind. Now, if you're thinking carefully, does that storyline ring a bell with you? Something that existed for all of eternity up in heaven that was perfect and that at a point in time came down to earth and made God manifest to mankind. If you're thinking carefully, that sounds a lot like John chapter 1. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. And so we need to understand that the Quran is not just a book to Muslims. It's much more akin to how you and I view Jesus Christ than it is how we view the Bible. That's why it's such an important book. That's why if we threaten to burn it, they get angry. That's why they revere the Quran. They put it on the highest shelf in their homes and wrap it in a cloth and only read it when it's in a special holder. They would never put it on the floor like we do with our Bibles. Because this is God, in one sense, come down to earth. So what do Muslims believe, secondly? Well, their worldview is very similar to our own. They believe in a creator God, angels and demons, heaven and hell. Judgment. They believe that God has sent a series of prophets and revealed his will throughout history, beginning with Adam and Abraham and Moses and David. And then Jesus came along and and finally God sent the final prophet, Muhammad. And you might ask, why did he need to do that? Well, God had revealed three other books, according to Muslims, before the Quran. The books of Moses, the Torah, the books of David, the Zabur, and the books of Jesus, the Injil. But there was only a slight problem with those books. And and the problem was this, that we don't have any of those original autographs or those original manuscripts that people like Moses and David and, and Luke and Paul actually wrote. You know what happened to those? Well, people copied them for centuries. And, and the nearest copy we have of the original autographs, and it's just a fragment from the New Testament, is some 100 years after it was written. And so the Muslims believe that in these first three books of God, as people began to, to, from generation to generation, write them out and pass them down, that mistakes crept into that which was originally a perfect revelation from God. So they believe in the books, but they say you don't have them anymore because what you have in the Bible is a corrupted, mistake-filled version of the original books. And so God then needed in 57080 to pick another prophet through whom he was going to reveal his final revelation. And that's why Muhammad is called the seal of the prophets and why his word trumps anything else that you might read in the rest of the other three holy books. If you're sharp, you may be wondering, well, didn't mistakes creep into the Quran as well? Because the printing press wasn't invented for another 800 years after Muhammad. Well, they figured that one out pretty quickly. And shortly after Muhammad's death, they gathered all the copies that had begun to circulate, made one official version of the Quran and burned all the other ones. So now they very proudly will say that from uh, from Algeria all the way to Indonesia, wherever you look at an Arabic Bible, down to the last jot and tittle, it is exactly the same as every other one. They feel they have a preserved text of the Quran. I've heard from many Muslims that, you know, there's not that much difference between our faiths. They call us the people of the book. They are the people of the book. And Christians as well, you'll hear that. Is we just have a few minor differences. Well... We have a lot of similarities, but our differences are major. And they center around the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You know, the greatest sin for a Muslim is to have more than one God. They call that shirk, which is idolatry. 
In fact, that's what Muhammad spent his whole life trying to wipe out in Arabia. And they see that Christians believe in not only one, but two, and and actually not only two, but how many gods do we have? Three? (laughs) Yeah, that's a tough one. We say Jesus is God, but if God was God and Jesus was God and they're talking to each other, that's two gods. And then you throw in the Holy Spirit and suddenly you've got three gods. And now we say there's only one, but we're kind of talking a little bit out of both sides of our mouth. It seems like to them. They can't understand that character of God. They say Jesus could not have been God because there's only one God. So Jesus, in their view, was just a prophet, just a human being. And the second major difference is they don't believe that Jesus died on the cross. They think that God could never do that to one of his prophets, to treat him so despicably as to have him undergo a death like that. And so what happened at the last minute is there was somebody who looked like Jesus who was substituted in his place and was crucified on the cross. And Jesus himself escaped and actually some think that he went to India and he's buried in Kashmir even today. Now, if you take out the deity of Christ and the death and resurrection of Christ, you've taken away the heart of our Christian faith. We are not similar at all. In fact, that view, the scripture says, is anti-Christ. Because 1 John 2.22 says, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. They're a religion without a Savior. All they have is someone pointing a sign that says, If you want to get to heaven, here's what you have to do, but I can't really help you. So how do they hope to get to heaven? Well, the central tenet of Muslim theology is this, that God is completely sovereign and able to do whatever he wants. So God can send anybody he wants to hell, and he can let anybody he wants into heaven. He could take the most righteous person on that day of judgment and say, you are going to hell. And he could take the most evil sinner on that day of judgment and in his great mercy allow that sinner to get into heaven. And this is why Islam does not speak much about the love of God. Because when you love somebody and are in a relationship with them, you are bound to help them, are you not? That's the essence of love. That's what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. But they say God is greater than all that. He can never be limited by those relationships. So God is free to do whatever he wants with us as his subjects. So in that light, how are you going to ever get into paradise? And the answer is you never know. As a Muslim, you believe that Muhammad is going to intercede for you in that line at Judgment Day, and that might help a little bit. You also know that God is going to pick up the scales of your good deeds and your bad deeds on that day. And if your good deeds have outweighed your bad deeds, then you might have a chance of getting into paradise. But even then, you cannot be assured of going to heaven. I've asked many Muslims that. Are you sure you're going to get into heaven? And they say, how could we know? In fact, that would be almost blasphemy because you're tying God down to a commitment that he is never forced to make. But still, they work hard. How do they earn their brownie points? There's five pillars of Islam. You say the creed, that there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. You pray five times a day, you fast during the month of Ramadan, you give alms to the poor, and you make a pilgrimage to Mecca. And let me just say this, that many Muslims are very genuine in their search for truth and for God. In fact, some of the most gracious religious people I know are Muslims. In fact, they put us to shame 
many times who practice our Christian religion only on Sunday morning. They do it every day of the week, five times a day. They fast for 30 days during the month of Ramadan, not eating or drinking from sunup to sundown in climates that might reach 120 degrees. That's how serious they are about their faith. But do you know the truth about Muslims? It's the same truth that Paul said about his own brothers, the Jews. They are zealous for God. They are and they put us to shame. But their zeal is not based on knowledge. Paul goes on to explain that. He says, since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Islam is an effort to establish human righteousness in the hopes that that will gain you God's favor on the day of judgment. Christianity says you can never, ever do that. The law requires it, but you can't fulfill it because you're a sinner. And Christ has fulfilled it, and He is the end of the law. He has fulfilled the law in His death and resurrection. And those who believe in Him are justified and saved. That is the truth of the gospel and the essential difference between our two religions. Yet as good as the best Muslim is, he or she has no assurance of getting into heaven unless they die in the cause of Islam. If you die as a warrior in jihad, you are guaranteed a straight shot into paradise. No wonder there's an unending line of willing suicide bombers. And very frankly, if I believed what they believe, I would be in that line as well. We don't understand the glory of the gospel. Well, what about terrorism? I'd like you to to help you understand a little bit of what their thinking is. And I want to start by taking you to a passage in the Bible. There are more references in the notes, but this is from our scriptures. May the praise of God be in their mouths and a double-edged sword in their hands to inflict vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples. This is the glory of all his saints. Don't read that too quickly. A double-edged sword means a steel sword that kills. And the psalmist was glorying in inflicting punishment and judgment on the nations. There is a religious zeal in the Old Testament to physically defeat the enemies of God, and it is that same zeal that fuels Islam today. Everything that is against God, every infidel, and the greatest infidel is the one who believes in more than one God, so that includes you and me, everything that is against God must be dealt with in this manner, according to Islam. You see, the world is divided into two camps, they say. There is the house of peace and the house of war. And it's only when the house of war, which is us, submits to the house of peace that there will be peace in the world. So how do they get us, the house of war, to submit to them? Well, here there are a variety of answers within Islam. And again, there are many references in the notes, but let me just take you to this verse in the Quran. I am with you. I give firmness to the believers. I will instill terror into the hearts of the unbelievers. Smite ye above their necks and smite all their fingertips off them. There are many verses in the Quran that speak of a physical act of aggression and even killing in order to convince the house of war to submit and become at peace with the house of peace. 
There's another very important book to Muslims called the Hadith, which is the traditions and the teachings of Muhammad. And just one reference from them. I have been ordered to fight against the people until they testify that none has the right to be worshipped but Allah. And then Allah's apostle was asked, what is the best deed? He replied, to believe in Allah and his apostle. The questioner then asked, what is the next in greatness? He replied, to participate in jihad in Allah's cause. There are two main streams of interpretation of these verses, which you can't deny these verses. They're in the Quran. But there are two ways to interpret them. One looks at all these verses in a symbolic or metaphorical way. It says, yes, God does want us to fight, but not physically. He wants us to fight with the pen and not the sword. To convince people of the beauty of Islam so that they join the house of peace. And those are your liberal Muslims. Now, just like in biblical interpretation, we have literalists and and figurative interpreters. So they have in Islam. And the literalists are the ones that take these verses and say, no, they mean exactly what they say, and we need to act on them exactly as they're written. We need to cut their heads off and their fingers off until they submit to us. And those are the radical Muslims. For them, it is war with unbelievers, and in war, any tactic is justified. So when they blow us up, they're just trying to bring peace to the world. By forcing our submission to their beliefs. And they feel that this is a righteous, a religious war on behalf of God. Well, it's important to ask the question, is this way of fighting the way of Muhammad himself? And in contrast to Jesus, it clearly was. It's safe to say that if Muhammad had not fought, his religion would never have been established. He had gathered only a few followers together, even up in Medina, And interestingly enough, when he was there, he began to get revelations that had a different tone to them. And these sections in the Quran that are more aggressive are ones that were revealed later in his life when he was beginning to struggle to establish his religion. And these references come from his time in Medina, when God now, in his view, authorized him to begin to attack anybody who did not believe. And so he, that, that's exactly how Islam was established. He took Medina, then he took Mecca, then he took the Arabian Peninsula, and by the sword, Islam spread all across North Africa, as we find it today. What a contrast that is to our Savior, Jesus. He said, put away the sword. Now, are all Muslims fundamentalists? Absolutely not. And we need to be careful of generalization, because they do that to us as well. They say, all you Christians are just like the Hollywood movies that we see, and we don't want that description of us, do we? Who knows how many radical Muslims there are in the world? I would guess a ballpark figure, maybe around 10% of Muslims are radical. Another large percentage, in my view, would be sympathetic to the motivations of the radical Muslims, although not in agreement with all of their tactics. And then there's another percentage of Muslims that are absolutely appalled at what their fellow Muslims are doing in the name of Islam. And you might ask, well, why don't they speak out more against their own people? One reason is their own fear. But secondly, they don't have a theological leg to stand on. You can't prove from the Quran that they should not fight this way. Just as if there was a sect within Christianity that began to be violent and take over the world by force of arms, we could take them to the scripture and debunk that whole view. And we would do that. But you can't do that with Islam because of this wealth of teaching about aggression. The wickedness of the city. 
Our second point this morning is the reluctance of the missionary. Turn back to the book of Jonah. In the face of a violent, hated enemy, what did Jonah do? We're in the series, What Would Jesus Do? from Matthew. What what did Jonah do? Well, first of all, we saw that he was disobedient. He ran exactly the opposite direction. But then God got his attention in the belly of the whale. And he said, all right, I think I'll obey you this time. And he does. But when this great revival breaks out, the Hebrew in verse 1 of chapter 4 is very fascinating. It says he was, the thing that God did was badness to Jonah with great badness. It's, it's emphatic in the Hebrew. He thinks God has done an evil or a wicked thing by not bringing his judgment on Assyria. He is angry. The reason was because they did not belong to the chosen people and Jonah could not stand them to receive the same blessings that the Jews had received. So he's angry. He was actually, I think we'd have to call him a bigot or a racist even because he did not want God's grace to extend to any other group of people. He needed to learn the lesson that the early church needed to learn in the book of Acts. They went around preaching only to Jews at first. Did you know that? And so God led a sheet down to Peter and he said, kill and eat even unclean animals. And Peter learned from that that God shows no favoritism. And the early church then began to spread out among the Gentile peoples as well. Jonah didn't get that. He was not only disobedient, but he was also a bigot. He he cared only about his own people. And yet God used him anyway. Isn't that amazing? God's salvation is big enough for everyone. In fact, He desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And we need our hearts to grow as big as the heart of God and not to be limited by our experiences and our feelings. And that's hard. There is a small minority of Christians in Pakistan as well as in Egypt, I know. And there they are mistreated and discriminated against by the Muslim majority. And so most Christians that I've met in Pakistan, and I worked with them for 14 years, actually, if truth were to be told, hate Muslims. You think Muslims have mistreated you? Try growing up under Muslim domination when you're a small minority in a country that they run. Just got an email last night from one of our Egyptian couples, and they said, pray for the Christians in Egypt. They are persecuted tremendously. Today, this was just last Friday, there were demonstrations after their Friday prayers calling for attacking Christians, churches, monasteries, priests, and bishops. I can well understand the story that Greg Livingstone told about one time when he was speaking to some believers in Egypt, and he was encouraging them to share their faith with Muslims, and he said, we need to... Proclaim the gospel to them because unless they hear the gospel and repent, they're all going to go to hell. And one of the Christians looked at him and said, you know what, that's the best place for him. Speaking out of a lifetime of pain and hurt. But that's looking at someone from a worldly point of view. That is not God's view. Did you notice as the text went on how self-centered Noah was? Here... 600,000 souls are at stake and Jonah's out in his shed. God provides a plant to give him shade. Then God provides a worm to kill the plant and suddenly Jonah is angry again. He's more concerned about his comfort and his ease than he is about all of these people that were on the verge of perishing. God turns up the heat and sends a scorching wind in verse 8 and Jonah is ready to die. God asks him, do you have a right to be angry about that plant? 
And Jonah says, yes, I do, because it was my only shade. And then God brings home the lesson that he wanted to teach Jonah and that he wants us to learn today in verse 11. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Are we more concerned about the plants in our life than we are about the souls of this great city of Islam? Are we more concerned about our retirement accounts and our savings accounts and our houses and saving for our kids' education and all of these plants that God has provided than we are about the eternal destiny of 1.5 billion people? My friends, we may be disobedient like Jonah. We might be bigots. We certainly are self-centered. We are ourselves the reluctant missionaries. So what do you do? You need to turn to the compassion of the Savior. And it's amazing in verse 2, Jonah had his theology down cold. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He's quoting actually from when God revealed his glory to Moses back in Exodus. And God said these same words, that my greatest glory is seen in my goodness and my mercy and my compassion. This is the God we serve and this is the God whose mercy you have tasted if you were a follower of his. And God's word this morning is, have you just enjoyed those blessings and are you reluctant to let other people participate in them as well because of perceived atrocities that they have done or maybe even real things that they have done to you? If you would enter into the compassion of the heart of God, which knows no limit, the scripture says, he wants all to be saved. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Then you will become an instrument of God's compassion to those very people, just as Jonah reluctantly had done. So how do we respond to radical Islam? Well, frankly, it depends who you are this morning. If you are not a child of God, if you've not been born again, then you can respond any way you want. I have nothing to say to you. But if you are a child of God, if if you have the Holy Spirit living within you, if you are serious about following Jesus, which is our desire here at College Park Church, to ignite in you a passion to follow Jesus, then you're going to respond as Jesus would to the Muslims of our world. What did Jonah do? What would Jesus do? Yes, there was religious warfare in the Old Testament, but once Jesus came, that all went away. He, the Prince of Peace, was the Lamb who before his shearers was dumb. He opened not his mouth. He endured such hostility from sinners against himself for their salvation. He is the one who, when the Samaritans refused to receive him and the disciples asked, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? They were full of religious zeal. Jesus rebuked them. That is not the way of Jesus. Are there instances, per Pastor Terry Jones, where enough is enough and we have to stand up for our rights? Jesus never said so. In fact, the scripture says, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when men succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. But you know what? There's more to it than just waiting for God's judgment. Because God does see all that evil and he will take it to hand. Don't worry. He's in charge. But Jesus says even more than wait for their judgment. He says in Luke chapter 6, 27 and 28, Love your enemies. 
Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And Matthew adds, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. You see, if you want to look at people from no longer a worldly point of view, but from the perspective of God and His Son Jesus, you will have the compassion of God for people that even mistreat you. God says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, I will repay, says the Lord. And then he says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You see, Muslims are not really the enemy at all. They are simply victims of the enemy. The God of this world has blinded their eyes through this incredible system that has survived for 1,400 years to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We should pity them and not be angry. Of course they do bad things. Every sinner does. And what they need is a savior. I have a bumper sticker in my office that says, defeat terrorism, sponsor a missionary. That's the only solution. There is no political answer to these questions facing us. The solution is that Jesus Christ would be preached, that people would be made new in him, born again, have the Holy Spirit in them, and suddenly they, like we, will be transformed and changed. And that is the only answer to the Muslim world. Why has this fortress of Islam been so little penetrated by the gospel of Jesus Christ? The answer, I believe, lies not in the wickedness of man, as terrible as it is, because God specializes in saving the worst of sinners. The answer lies not in the weakness of the compassion of God, for he is abounding in loving kindness, he says. The answer, I think, lies in the reluctance of the missionary and of the church to take the message of that compassion to the Nineveh of our generation. They must hear, and in order to hear, there must be a messenger. Raymond Lull was born in 1236 into a prominent family in Spain, and he felt that God was calling him to reach the Muslim people. This was during the days of the Crusades. He came out of a life of wanton debauchery and excess spending, and God radically transformed him in his 30s. And he, he spent 10 years preparing to go to North Africa to preach the gospel. He learned Arabic. He studied Islamics. And at age 55, he was ready to board a ship for Tunis. When he got up to the dock, he could not make his feet get on that ship because he knew what awaited him. Because the Christian world at that time was engaged in the Crusades. The answer to Islam was to kill them and defeat them. Raymond Lull knew that there was a better way. He gathered his courage again, and the next ship that sailed he was on, and he went to Tunisia and began to proclaim the gospel of Christ, promptly stoned for his efforts and deported. Went back again at age 75, put in jail again, and kicked out of the country. And at 83, he went back one more time. And there in the public streets of Algeria, he proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the people had had enough of him, and they took him out and stoned him to death at age 83. But what was he trying to do? He was trying to build a beachhead for the grace of Christ among the Muslim people. And I wonder this morning, is there a Raymond Lull anywhere among us here at College Park Church? Might God call some of us out to go and take this message because that's what we need? It's not going to happen by our soldiers. It's going to be happen, it's going to happen by ambassadors of Jesus Christ that go and incarnate the love of Jesus 
among the Muslim peoples, and we need thousands of people to do that. You don't even have to go as a full-time missionary. Joel and Amy Erickson are here. Could you guys just stand? They're, they're back from the United Arab Emirates, where Joel works as a, a, an engineer. He got a job. His company transformed, transferred him there. And this couple is incarnating the love of Jesus Christ in the Middle East right now. There are many ways that we can go. Thanks, guys, and welcome back to College Park. The Hunts, another missionary family from our church in the Caspian, living out what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the midst of a Muslim world. We need more of you to go. It's tough. We'll help you get ready to go. We'll help you train. We'll support you when you go. But we need to send more out. Now, not all of you are going to go, but you can pray. And the other thing you can do is engage Muslims right where you are. You know them. It's not that complicated. Don't be afraid of them. They're not going to hurt you. Love them. They care about the same things you do. Their kids' education, paying off the mortgage, their next doctor visit. They're just human beings. Get to know them and share how God has transformed your life with the grace of Jesus Christ. And present this to them that you know for sure, based on what Jesus has done, that you're going to heaven and they can have that same hope. Have you noticed in the Bible that sometimes God's values are very different from ours? See, we value life and peace and comfort more than anything else. God values souls, as he says in Jonah 4:11. Now, I don't know all the reasons why 9-11 happened, but we see in Scripture that God sometimes upsets the apple cart. He stirs things up. He moves people around. He allows suffering and even death so that his people will understand the heart of God and obey it. And I wonder if God in his sovereignty did not allow 9-11 to happen to say in a loud voice to the American church, wake up! For generations you haven't cared about those people over there living in the darkness of Islam. And I know that because when I came back as a missionary kid, nobody cared about where I grew up. When we went as a missionary, very few people were interested. But today you're listening to me carefully. Why? It's because of 9-11. And the Muslims are in your face. And I think God is in His sovereign and perhaps severe grace allowed that to happen. So that He would awaken the church of Christ to get involved in this last great bastion of the enemy. And to take the love of Jesus Christ to them so that they might be saved. If we do that, then something is going to change. Instead of running from our Nineveh, we will embrace it with the love that God gives us for these people. And we will proclaim to it, there is a Savior, and His name is Jesus. And then watch in His sovereign grace as God begins to deliver them out of the terrible darkness that they're in and brings them into the beautiful light of the kingdom of His Son, the Savior of the whole world. Will you pray with me? Father, we confess that we are often too much like the man that Mark has been talking about from the parable on the forgiven man. You have forgiven us much, and yet we just want to keep those blessings for ourselves. Lord, we confess that today, that our, our attitudes have not been what they should be. They've been fleshly, they've been even nationalistic, but they've not been biblical. Would you forgive us and then... Father, would you take us and send us to this great group of people 
Would you break through in powerful new ways that the name of Jesus and all of his grace and his truth would be honored among them and they would be saved. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Go in his grace.